This episode of I Save That Podcast is sponsored by SecureCath. The revolutionary SecureCath subcutaneous catheter securement device improves patient care and saves money by reducing catheter-related complications. Learn more at www.securecath.com. SecureCath, for the life of the line. Welcome to episode two of season three of the I Save That podcast. In this episode, we speak with the two clinicians who are partly responsible for obtaining vascular access to Fiona, the hippo in Cincinnati, who recently celebrated her third birthday, as well as the leader of, an, of the National Home Infusion Association about recent changes in that arm of the vascular access specialty. But we begin this week's show by welcoming two clinicians with extensive experience using SecuraCath within their practice. Angelique Gaston is a member of the rapid response team at St. Mary's Mercy Hospital in Michigan, and she is also vascular access board certified, a leader on her vascular access team, and she has used SecureCath for many vascular access procedures. Julie Lee is also a vascular access team member and a member of the rapid response team at St. Mary's as well. Julie is also vascular access board certified and, like Angelique, has extensive experience with SecureCath. Julie Angelique, welcome to the show. I have Judy Thompson, Ava's Director of Clinical Education, also on with us today. Good morning. Good morning. We're very excited to have you on our show today. I'd like to start. Angelique, tell me about your practice, your team. I remember being out with you guys at your facility quite a few years ago now, and we, we taught a few of you guys CBC insertion. Tell me where you've yeah. gone from there. So we are a relatively newer vascular access team um, within the last four years. And Julie and I together helped to develop the vascular access team at our hospital. Um, we, um, we got a lot of pushback in the development stage, but have made quite a bit of progress since that time. Um, for SecuraCast, we happened to be invited to a MyVan dinner, a Michigan um, Vascular Access Network dinner, where we were kind of introduced to this product. And I actually had the reservations, to put it mildly. Um, it looked sort of barbaric, and I was actually against initially. But my team members, who were far more forward-thinking and open-minded than me, suggested that we just um, present it to our physician champion, who was our ICU doctor. And from there, we actually started a trial. And we have had great success from, the, from, from all over our building, um, and we love it. We, uh, we have reduced our migration. We have reduced our clapsies. The nurses love it for maintenance, and I could just go on and on. We, we support this product 100%. That's good to hear because there's a, a lot of focus on securement and the complications caused by lack of securement. So Julie, Julie, tell me about your experience. Um, so just as Angelique was saying, we were kind of looking for a solution. We were having difficulties and problems with migration, dislodgement. There's nothing worse than spending a lot of time to get a line in, and two days later you come back and see it's migrated out four centimeters, um, or you have a skin injury from adhesive. Um, so we had we were looking and knew there must be a better way. 
So, as Angelique said, she wasn't as open to the idea, nor was I, to be honest, but we did give it a try. And when I hear SecureCast, I honestly say game changer. It's a game changer. It's amazing. No migration, no dislodgement. We've had zero lines fall out when SecureCast is properly placed. That's huge. It's huge for us. It's huge for our patients. It saves us time. Um, our dressings, everything looks beautiful because of Secure Gas. Um, so it's been wonderful. And our team to date since using Secure Gas has had zero collapses. We have not had a single infection. Um, I definitely attribute, attribute that to using this product. Um, so it's been wonderful. Very impactful. And although the administration was kind of um, hesitant because of the price initially, in the end, it reduced costs because we reduced line replacements, and it changed how we did our dressing changes. So overall, it was a big cost savings to the hospital. Tell me about the patient's perception of these. Well, our patients, when they don't know what SecureCAF is or what they're getting or they've never had a line, they they don't know any different. We haven't had any issues. Um, I haven't had any patients complaining. But what is really exciting is when you do have a patient who's had one or several previous lines and they come in and they say, oh, my last line fell out. I don't want this to happen again. Or I got an infection. And to be able to present to them someone who's knowledgeable as a patient about securement and saying, I've had patients say, can you please suture my line? I do not want any adhesive. And I'm like, really? I go, well, let me tell you what we have. <laughs> and to see them get excited to know that they're going to get something great and it's going to prevent these problems they've had, that's what's really cool about using this. Um, so patient perception when it comes to patients with previous lines has been awesome, completely awesome. And patients with no experience, I mean, they don't know that they're getting the best. So it's pretty cool. That's, that's wonderful to hear. Angelique, when your patients go out with these lines, they leave the hospital and they go to um, a skilled nursing facility or uh, whatever the case may be, was there any pushback from these facilities? No, because we made sure that we educated each facility that had patients going with the SecureCast device on. And they were pleasantly surprised as well because on education, when we demonstrated how to clean and change dressing, they, they said it was monumental because they had experienced line migration as well. You can't see it, but I had a I, giant smile on my face when you said it. you educated prior to implementing. <laughs> that, I'm yeah. very happy to hear that. that. That is key. That is key. I mean, this product, it's, it's amazing. But if the education isn't provided, it's not going to be amazing. You w there will, people will struggle if you're not given that proper education. There is a learning curve and it's extremely important. Um, I think we were given really good um, education when we implemented this um, and that's what made us successful. But we have had a couple of calls from uh, home care agencies and facilities who maybe weren't in our reach that we did not educate because they weren't a facility we use frequently um, and we would get a phone call we are um, very diligent about providing the card the information to the patient 
and if the patient's not able to understand, um, we will even go as far to reach out if it's a facility that we're not familiar with um, because we want to make sure that they get the education. And if they do call us, um, we provide then and there. It's really quite simple as long as we can give them, um, we offer them to come and either show them how to remove and or we're able to talk them through removal. That was going to be my next question. If you've had any calls about coming back out to remove the devices themselves. Yeah, and we have not had to personally go and remove. We've actually been successful. Um, I've talked probably three nurses through removal over the phone, um, and they were very comfortable once I said, um, do you have a smartphone? you know, go to securecast.com. There's a quick two minute removal video. Then I'm gonna talk you through it and they remove it and they're like, oh, wow. Okay, that was easy. Perfect. I do wanna put in a, a shameless plug for the education Securecast has put out on their product. Because as you said, it's it's not intuitive. You look at this and it's not an intuitive device. It doesn't have adhesive. You don't just stick it on the skin. But the education they've provided is high quality. It's really nice to see. And I was going to add that SecureCast has a 24-hour um, hotline number that if anybody is having any problems, they can call in and get a live person 24 hours a day to help with any complications that they might be having. Oh, wow. I did not know that. That's awesome. Well, a couple more questions, um, one for each of you before we let you go today. Um, Angelique, I'm going to start with you. Yes. What's next on the horizon for your team? So our team, as you said before, are, we're hyper-focused on education. And I think that we're going to start in our own building to spread the word on um, the availability of SecureCast, not only on pick lines, mid lines, central lines, but we're also moving toward drains. So we're working with our IR department to help implement um, the, the use of SecureCast on drains. So that is what's most, uh, what's most focused for us on our, or our agenda, what's next for us on our agenda, to spread it to lines and drains in IR. Julie, you're coming to AVA this yeah. year in Denver. Tell me your thoughts. Woohoo! I am very excited to come to Denver. I've heard the AVA conference is incredible, and there's so much to see and so much to learn. So I'm very excited. Oh, you should be. Uh, I, we just came back from the D team meeting in Denver, Colorado, and the facility is beautiful. The hotel is nice. It's gorgeous. It's close to the airport. But um, be sure to bring your bathing suit. It has a wonderful lazy river for those moments that you're not immersed in education. And um, can't wait to see you there. And thank you Perfect. both for being on our show today. Thank you. Thank you. The SecureCast Subcutaneous Engineered Stabilization Device is a revolutionary new method for catheter securement that does not require adhesives or sutures. The unique design of SecureCath secures right at the insertion site and lasts for the life of the line. The SecureCath can dramatically decrease catheter migration and dislodgement, decrease catheter replacement costs, reduce catheter-related infections, prevent medical adhesive-related skin injury, and lower total cost of patient care. SecureCath, because patients deserve better. 
For more information, visit www.securacath.com. Welcome back to Season 3, Episode 2 of the I Save That Podcast. We'd like to welcome two very special guests to the show, Darcy Dolman and Blake Gustafson. Darcy is the clinical manager for the vascular access team at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. She's involved with all things vascular access, including the education, policy, procedures, research uh, for pediatric, neonatal, and adult patients. She also served as AVA president uh, quite a while ago, more than a decade actually, and works alongside Blake at Cincinnati Children's. Blake is a registered nurse, and she's also on the vascular access team at Cincinnati Children's, and she has more than 10 years of experience in vascular access. Together, Blake and Darcy led the charge to achieve vascular access for Fiona, a baby hippo that was born premature in 2017. Fiona recently celebrated her third birthday. Happy birthday. Happy belated birthday to Fiona. So it's safe to say that she's doing well, and both Darcy and Blake deserve a significant amount of credit for that. So ladies, we'd love to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks so much, Eric. We're excited to talk to you. This is Judy. And um, let's start with just the background on your vascular access team at Cincinnati Children's. Like the size, what services for people, not just in the veterinary field. Sure. So um, Cincinnati Children's, our beds, it's right around 642 beds. Um, we're a large pediatric hospital, and our vascular access team is rather large also. There's around 49 nurses on it, and we have about six PCAs, which is the patient care um, assistants, which help us with the setup and also with stocking and then helping support the patient during the um, actual procedure. And this is a 24-7 team. Um, our business is vascular access, so we do probably with picks um, between the neonatal pediatric adult patients. Um, it's about 140 picks a month. Midlines is probably around 15 or so. Um, IVs, um, gosh, probably around 1,800 a month. Lots of lab draws, um, I think around three to 400 a month. And using imaging devices too. So using ultrasound, and I think right now we have about a dozen ultrasound uh, machines. We're also using some different devices too for neonates and trying to visualize veins. Um, we also uh, monitor patients every day. So this is a patient having any central venous access device, and whether it's a PIC, a port, a tunnel line, um, an HD catheter. So we're looking at the documentation the previous day, looking at things, is there a fever, um, looking if there's any type of issues with the dressing, looking at the tip placement, in case any x-rays were done. Um, we're also doing um, any type of troubleshooting, so any type of complication, occlusion, um, migration, malposition. I think that's yeah. IV infiltrations. We go and assess those. And um, we also do education. So this is for, you know, our nursing staff, which there's about 3,000 bedside nurses here. So um, we do a lot with the vascular access education, also for um, providers. Um, we do research also. Um, we've published quite a bit of research here on neonatal and pediatric vascular access. Um, so we do sort of a little bit of everything as patients are coming in, whether it's, you know, in an outpatient setting, in the trauma bay, on any type of unit needing vascular access. 
um, this is our um, role, and we're going there looking at the patient, choosing the right device, and then placing the catheter. So you guys are the model for success that the, we need to go to. I'm, in, I'm so impressed. This is awesome. You sound quite busy, to say the least. Yeah, it really is. And this is um, years um, in the making. So Blake and I started on the Vaster Access team, and it's gone through many different name um, changes. It was like the PIC resource nurse, the CVC resource nurse, and then the Vaster Access team, probably in the late uh, 90s, I would say. Um, so this has been 20 plus years of really looking at what's really best for um, any patient coming here. And back then we just were covering the day shift and then it went to weekends and then 24 seven. So it really is a excellent model for looking at vascular access, for looking at planning for it, um, inserting it, the management of it, complications, and then keeping data too is really huge for us because for any product, any um, practice change that we're looking at data and making decisions really based on data. So I think it's really excellent for any patient coming here, getting our um, services in case the patient needs it. I love it. And God, we trust all others bring data pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) So let's switch gears a little bit and tell us how you got involved with this baby hippopotamus. We've all come to know as Fiona. Well, at least for me, and this is Blake, um, we, I came to work and everybody in the office was all talking about how they had gotten a phone call the day before and they might use us for uh, Fiona because she was getting dehydrated. And um, didn't really think of it, anything, just was like, oh, wow, that'd be kind of cool. And then all of a sudden was, called into the office with Darcy and they're like, you guys are going to the zoo to uh, try to get access <laughs> on this hippo. <laughs> Sounds like a great way to start the day at work. You're going to the zoo. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. It was like, oh. Yeah. And one of the things that's important too, the Cincinnati Zoo is right next door. So um, there's a lot of patients that, you know, are going there on maybe a daily pass in the warmer weather. So um, it's really close. And when Fiona was born um, in January, on January 24th, um, one of the things is that she um, was born premature. So um, she was born at 29 pounds. And I'd have to say, and Blake probably agrees, um, we didn't know much really about hippos before February, three years ago. <laughs> and, um, you know, we knew a little bit about hippos, but not very much. But um, a normal size uh, newborn hippo is around. Um, 70 to 90 pounds. So Fiona was born about six weeks early. And this is the first like um, hippo born in um, any zoo in the world. Um, So they didn't really have any um, experience with it. And she actually did really well the first couple weeks and then she really quit drinking. And this is when that really became a problem um, keeping her hydrated. Um, but yes, and then on the news, so all the local news was talking about her, you know, that she's, you know, a week old, she's two weeks old, you know, she's doing well. And then prior to being called, um, we started hearing that she wasn't really drinking, she was critically ill. And um, we were getting, you know, I think just as a city getting a little worried about her that, um, you know, what's really going on, because we didn't really have any other information about that. 
Wow. So tell me how you assess the veins and what did you look for? Did you know the vascular patterns? No, well, we went down there and, um, you know, how we're all used to being sterile and it definitely all they wanted us to do was take <laughs> off our shoes and then put on this little jumpsuit. There was really no place to even wash our hands. Um, but so they wanted us to, to place it behind her ears because they wanted to keep her wet and moist. And that's why she kept losing IVs because they would put her in the water and they would fall out. So, um, we looked behind the ear with ultrasound and didn't see anything. And then the veterinarian was there and she pretty much said, well, usually they have a saponous vein kind of showed us where it was. And sure enough, there, there was a vein there. So we really went off of what they said. I mean, all that good stuff with the ultrasound image, was it vastly different from what you're used to? No, it was a nice big juicy vein and, um, yeah, it, it, it looked really good. We were worried about the skin. That was the main, was our needle going to be strong enough to get through the skin? Um, so we brought, you know, we brought lots of supplies, lots of different size needles that we used to uh, get the access. So, and, Judy, uh, yeah. I was also thinking too, when we were going over there, the actual room, like their nursery at the zoo, I mean, has a lot of different um, supplies there, but um, it was really warm um, because of her, you know, being very small. So the room was very, very hot. We actually put some scrubs on just so that we're clean going in. So they um, had different scrubs for us to put on during the actual procedure. And Fiona was just laying there, you know, for any hippo, that's usually um, a newborn they're swimming around already and she was just laying there on oxygen not really moving at all um and everybody there was very worried about her um the one thing too that sort of was um it's sort of funny now thinking about it is she's on the ground and so me being a little bit taller i was like so is there like a table or something they're like no she's on the ground I'm like okay so then um, you just sort of switch gears and you're like, okay, we'll do this kneeling down on the ground. Um, but yeah, they um, were keeping her warm and trying to keep her comfortable. Um, and I think around this time, um, she was maybe like 47 pounds. She, yeah. um, I think she had gained some weight. Um, but yeah, it was just like, it was very warm. And um, she's like on the gym mat, kind yeah, of. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what... Um... How did you figure out what device to put in for her? Well, the day before Darcy had gotten the call, so she actually had brought all different types of devices. They had all different dressings and midlines and picks. And just by looking at her, we decided to go with a midline. So we did actually do two attempts. So the first attempt, um, when a measure didn't really think about her bending her leg, when it went in, it kind of was at the bend. So when she would move, it would stop it from working. And we, we tried to leave that. We actually measured both legs. So in case it didn't work, they would know if it was infiltrating. Um, and we got a call within 20 minutes that it wasn't working. So we went back and actually cut it a little shorter. So it was a midline um, okay. that we put in. And, um, it was a three French midline. It was seven centimeters long. This was a trimmable midline. 
And one of the things, I think this is important for us in thinking about as best for access specialists, you know, really looking at, you know, there's a lot of device algorithms, there's the magic guidelines, you know, really thinking about what's, what, what's really best. This is something that we're doing all the time at any um, hospital for vascular access teams that we're looking at the patient's history so that um, IVs are not lasting long at all. Um, and knowing that she's very sick, um, she's critically ill, and thinking about the best access. So knowing that, um, we decided that really a midline is best. And then looking under ultrasound, it was this straight bait, and um, then getting that access, I think was important. So you guys were on the floor on your your knees. Um, yeah. Uh, tell me more about the insertion procedure itself. Oh God! Well, it was it was definitely strange when you're so used to wearing hat and mask and gloves and getting sterile and basically set up the sterile field on the floor mm -hmm. next to us and kind of I'm not sure how sterile we actually were, um, which was just a very foreign thing. It was. Um, and they didn't even have, you know, their their caregivers were holding the leg, so they didn't even have gloves on. They didn't care if their blood touched them or not. But yeah, that was that was kind of a weird feeling. But um, other than that, yeah, it was just we took a portable ultrasound and positioned it, and they held her down, and uh, it went pretty smoothly from there. And I think an important piece too is so so the hippo skin, uh, it was very surprising to us. It's very tough. It's like an avocado. So mm -hmm. as Blake mentioned before, you know, any needle might bend or you're pushing and it's going through um, any vein, so it's gonna be blown. So what is that we did and we we've done this a few other times, you know, just sort of thinking together on what's really, what's really the best thing because of that skin being tough is that we were using some lidocaine and numbed um, Fiona's leg or just that small that small area, the um, insertion area. And it was probably only like maybe 0 0.2, 0.3 yeah. mLs of lidocaine and 1%. We numbed it and then using sort of the blood tip needle, I think it's, what is it, a 19 gauge or 21 yeah. gauge needle. We, after numbing it, we were scraping off the outer skin um, and it was just a little bit scraping it off and she's um, numb, but otherwise the needle would have been upon trying to actually advance it. So mm -hmm. by taking off that, that little shell or that outer skin, it then made it really easy. Yeah. The skin um, or the layer underneath, you know, it's very soft and then the needle went um, in really easy. So I think, you know, just really thinking about every single step of it, um, I think was really important for us. Did she even react to the lidocaine or could you tell? She did, she did pull her, I mean, they were holding her pretty hard, um, but yeah, she did pull away. She didn't mm -hmm. feel it. And what about catheter securement, dressing, that kind of stuff? How did you work that out? Um, we just brought a lot of different dressings with us. We used some skim prep. We also sutured the line in place so it wouldn't fall out. Um, and we actually, we didn't bring a needle that was big enough. So the vet had given us one of theirs uh, that was a little bit stronger. And then we just used a transparent dressing and tape. So uh, they were able to keep that on. And that actually stuck to her, her skin. That's impressive. 
Yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah it exactly. Did. Stuck. And, they, and the, um, the surgery was really helpful because her skin, again, is really tough. And knowing, too, she's at the zoo, we wanted to secure access. Um, and we really didn't have anything um, else to really secure, to secure that we um, thought that, you know, that we felt very confident that it's going to last. So um, it was sutured in. So after you, you replaced the first one you put in, um, did the second one maintain its patency throughout her, her therapy? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the stuff that we did um, was, um, so got access, flushed well, um, and we started talking about, so how are the fluids given? And they talked about a bolus. And I was thinking, okay, that sounds good. But then I started wondering, well, gosh, this is a midline. This is a new catheter just for the Society Zoo. I wanted to make sure after the access was actually successful that it um, remained as, as long as the patient needed or the um, tipo needed it. And um, so we asked about any type of pump that they might have, um, infusion pump, and they they actually had one, and I was really surprised, but they do have one there. So we talked about a KVO, a um, continuous fluid going through it, because I was just sort of thinking that this is gonna be easier than trying to flush it, you know, with thinking about maybe the different syringes over there. So by doing that, um, it actually lasted six days. So we were, you know, very happy about that. But a little surprised that it lasted that long because after a couple of days, um, she started standing up and started, I think, walking a little bit. Um, so um, we um, were really happy about her outcome by having the midline catheter. So yeah, the vet would give Darcy updates uh, pretty much daily. We all were like, okay, what's happening with her now? Yeah, <laughs> she, uh, she would text me and say they. Um, Hippocatheter, she called it, is doing well. She kept calling it hippocatheter. And so I was like, great, because Blake and I sort of thought, well, they might be calling us back, and we were looking at our schedules, and, you know, we exchanged the um, cell phone numbers, and I was really surprised, like, the next day at work. So we um, we actually placed it on a Friday. Saturday at work, I'm like, okay, good. And then I was waiting on Sunday to get the um, text. We're like, yeah, it's working great. And she's taking a bottle now, which um, was a huge um, sort of uh, thing for her um, to actually start doing. And then the next day, like she started taking three bottles and she kept doing a lot better. So we um, were really happy about that. So she has gained wide popularity, international popularity. How did that... <laughs> come about? Oh, gosh. I think um, at least here at Children's, the parents and kids, they really identified with her, especially like in our newborn ICU. These parents saw these little preemies and related their preemies to Fiona and how strong she was and their kids were going to be strong. So I think that happened. Um, I think when kids come here even now to get IVs, they're you know, they'll say, oh, well, vascular access team's coming. They put the IV in Fiona. And then they're like, oh, well, if they can, you know, if they can do that, they can do me. So if they can um, handle a 3,000-pound animal, they can handle me. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, but I just think everybody saw her as an underdog. And 
that she just kept thriving and doing well and just people really identified with that. This and story just puts a giant smile on my face. This is yeah. amazing. Yeah. And so is the uh, the hippo catheter like the the name hippo catheter? Are you guys working on FDA approval for that, or hippo is that hippo cath? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that would be yeah. funny. But I think too, um, besides being like a um, you know, she sort of represents somebody that might have had challenges early on and um, overcame them. I think too, I mean, she was so cute. I mean, just a, a little baby hippo. And I think, you know, people started visiting her. And Cincinnati has gone a little bit crazy. There is Fiona ice cream, Fiona like t shirts and pants. There's stuffed animals. I think they've gone a little more than a little crazy. <laughs> I, I'm like, I live in Columbus and I've gone to see Fiona multiple times. I'm a fan, I'm, admittedly. And I see signs everywhere. I mean, I've had the ice cream. It's Fiona mania is still happening. So I, I agree yeah. with you there. Yeah. yeah. You should see our office. Yeah. <laughs> our, um, office I should. Fiona stuff in it too. But, you know, it's just been a, a, a lot of fun um, for us, you know, just that come to work, you're ready to work and you get a call at the zoo and you just start thinking, gosh, because uh, one of the things too, just in thinking back at um, in driving over there, so the security department drove us over because we had an ultrasound uh, machine and a bag full of goodies, um, and they drove us over there. And this was too; it, it was pretty cold out. Also, this yeah. is February in Cincinnati. Um, we're like, I mean, she's like 40 pounds. You know, somebody who's 40 pounds is really usually pretty easy for us. It's not that difficult. So we're like, yeah, she's 40 pounds. We have everything. It's going um, to be fine. And then we just sort of stopped and we were looking and saying, oh my gosh, but this is a hippo. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we're just like, oh my gosh, like, what are we going to do? It's like, well, we'll just have to go in and figure it out. And that's what we did. Yeah. Yeah. This is such a good story, guys. I'm, um, excited for you guys what what other impact has it had for your vascular access team and the hospital i mean i just think everybody you know you pass people in the hallway they know that we did fiona of course we've got pictures on our door up there and um, i usually do a conference like that ava and they're like oh you guys are the ones that did the hippo so i just think um you know it just shows that vascular access can it's not just for humans. It can be, you know, reach far. Hundred percent. You guys are internationally known at Cincinnati Children, and for many things, your research. Uh, there's a ton of stuff there, but Fiona is pretty high on the list. Yeah, it really is. Have you think... been called back to the zoo to do any other animals, or had you done any? or Cincinnati Children's in general, not necessarily you two in particular, had you done any vascular access or anything to any other animals before or after you worked on Fiona? Um, we have not, but they they have been called, um, different departments um, have dealt with other animals at the zoo. So I think with their gorillas, they've done some stuff, ultrasounds and cardiology has been involved, but not our department, we're waiting. Yeah, we're waiting. <laughs> what a great so. partnership. 
it. That is amazing. Well, I can't thank you two enough for giving Yes, thank you. It was great. Today. This is just, I have a giant smile on my face. This is the best story. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank I you. Know. Thank you. It was fun, that's for sure. Yeah, thank you, ladies, and everyone else can stay tuned. For, uh, Judy and I, after the break, we'll speak with Jennifer Sharon uh, from NHIA. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Thank you. The SecureCath Subcutaneous Engineered Catheter Stabilization Device has proven to significantly reduce migration and dislodgement on central venous access devices. SecureCath is non-adhesive, therefore it eliminates skin injury issues associated with adhesive securement devices. SecureCath is included in the 2016 Infusion Nursing Standards and has been recommended by the United Kingdom's National Institute for Care and Health Excellence. SecureCath saves time, money, and improves satisfaction in catheter securement. SecureCath is for the life of the line, reducing anxiety and concerns around catheter movement or the dreaded falling out during the routine dressing changes. To get started with SecureCath in your clinical practice, visit www.securecath.com now. Welcome back to the show. Ava, Director of Clinical Education, Judy Thompson and I are happy to welcome Jen Sharon, the Chief Operating Officer at the National Home Infusion Association and Ava Partner. We've had Jen on the show before and are happy to welcome her back. Hello, Jen. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me. We're always excited to talk to my Ava friends. We're so happy to talk to you as well. So for those of you that don't know, or for those out there that don't know NHIA, tell us a little bit about you guys. Yeah, so I think maybe a little different than what AVA, where AVA is more of an individual um, membership. NHIA is a trade association, and we represent both the home infusion providers as well as the suppliers that you know help us serve all of our patients, as well as, well as some home health agencies. Um, that focus really on the care of the patient in the home and may not have a pharmacy. So the difference really is if a company is a, a member of NHIA, then all of their employees are members of NHIA, where some associations have that kind of individual membership. So it works out really well for us. We have a huge swath of members um, right now, and um, you know that's kind of what we do. That's interesting. I kind of like that. So you see, you don't, you're not in acute care. You are specifically home infusion, correct? Yeah, right. So, and I, I would say home infusion and also alternate site. So many home infusion providers have um, infusion suites. And so we kind of see that building trend, um, obviously, because there's a lot of uh, medications that either might want to do a first dosing in a suite or only given in a suite. And it allows home infusion providers to kind of um, care for that patient along the entire care continuum. Um, so we're seeing that a lot, um, but so we're really focused on infusion and post-acute. And so that can be anybody from a home infusion provider um, through a physician office or um, you know an, an infusion suite as well. Okay. Um, well, what kind of trends do you see out there in home infusion? Boy, it's, um, we just are growing. <laughs> you know, post-acute, um, I think what we've seen over the last, uh, four years or so is really a big push to move patients from the acute care um, or infusion suites out into the home. Probably the largest um, area we're seeing that is in um, intermittent infusions for chronic disease states. So for instance, you know, years ago, 
uh, Remicade in particular, or drugs like Remicade, were given in infusion suites. Over the last four or five years, what we've seen is that's moving home, both by payer um, requirements or changes in the way that um, things are required to pay, but also for patients. And so, you know, I think I think about when I first started in home infusion about 10 years ago, a lot of times patients really already had their lines in place when they came home. So they were coming home from the acute care setting. They needed six weeks of antibiotics or parental nutrition. Um, and that's really the care was about the care and the, the care and maintenance of the line. Now we're just, we're putting lines in at home, uh, peripherals, uh, extended dwell peripherals, midlines, picks. Um, all of that's now happening in the home, and a lot of that is related to the shift um, from acute care and really being able to manage those more complex patients in the home. That could be challenging, I'm I'm sure. Yeah, I think for, you know, home infusion nurses, we welcome it. We're excited to have it. I think, you know, a lot of times when, for instance, when I started home infusion, I had done IVs in acute care setting, so I always thought, why am I not placing IVs at home? Um and with this change, I think it helps, um, you know, really show the skill needed for a home infusion nurse. Absolutely. When um, placing central lines or midlines, is it difficult to maintain sterility in the home? You know, I, I think not home, all homes are appropriate for placement. Um, and that really is focused on the nursing assessment going into a home. And I can say there are times when we've gone into a home where we've just deemed it um, not appropriate. Um, and then there's times, obviously, when we've gone in and said, this is a good scenario, this is a good situation. Um, we don't feel that we're gonna have any problems here. But as with everything we do, um, you know, being able to maintain that is the highest priority. Um, and if a clinician feels that they are not able to maintain that, then they would not continue with the placement in the home. A lot of times too, um, some of the, PICs, uh, midlines are also placed in physician offices or, or in the infusion suites. So those also those patients don't necessarily have to go into the hospital, have those placed. They can have them placed in an outpatient setting. So there's, you know, I feel like now for patients, there really are three options. Um, they can be placed in the acute care setting, um, an outpatient setting, and also in the home. Okay. Um, what about ergonomics? Sorry, I'm kind of going off of a, a I'm picturing that. <laughs> And I put some lines in where, uh, in places where maybe the bed didn't move or come up um, to mm. waist level. How do you guys deal with that? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, in-home clinicians are, we are just, we've been doing that forever. I, I mean, I think about it, my acute care days, if I had a wound care, right, I could move the the height of the bed to the exact height that I wanted it to. I had all of, you know, the equipment or, you know, tables and so forth. And you just, when you're in home care, you really know how to do that. Um, and you just do the best you can. And and sometimes that means moving the patient for, into a different room, into a different type of chair. Um, sometimes it means bringing in an additional clinician. But it's not something that we haven't been doing uh, for a long, long time. And, you know, I equate a lot of what we're talking about to the, to the complexity of wound care that we've seen in the past um, and continue to see in home care. There's nothing like trying to put a dressing on somebody who has a foot wound. I can't raise a chair. I can't do any of that. I just have <laughs> to develop my own ability for, to protect my back and, my, um, and do the best we can. And it, it really does work out really well. You guys are truly MacGyvers out there, I think. 
we are, but I, you know, I hate to use the term MacGyver because MacGyver always has this connotation of kind of risky, um, and and it's not. I mean, what we do has uh, been proven time and time again. We have great data about the outcomes in home care, and and really, um, you know, patients prefer to be at home, and so we try to do everything we possibly can um, to keep patients home. Well, when I think about MacGyvers, I think about resourcefulness, not really risky. Mm. We're, we're, we're thinking two different ways. So speaking yeah. about data, um, When I think about MacGyver, I think about the 80s TV show. I don't know. Maybe somebody <laughs> else could do that way too. <laughs> Truth that fact, was Aaron. one of my favorite shows and I hate to admit it, but boy, I really like that. You could do a lot with duct tape. <laughs> that's, that's right. Honestly, Richard that's Dean was the man. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned data a moment ago. Yeah. What is NHIA doing to support data collection in the alternate care or site care? Yeah, so we've done some over the last three years. So we have a foundation similar to AVA, um, and our foundation has been focused on, on really setting metrics um, and data points for our industry, something that we really haven't been collecting as a whole across the industry. Providers collect it, um, but we haven't been able to benchmark it um, against, um, you know, uh, nationally. So a few years ago, we developed a patient satisfaction survey, a validated survey, um, and we had uh, a group of providers who actually were able to do a pilot study with us, and they implemented the um, questionnaire, and were able to kind of really work with them to develop the process for collecting it at home. Um, and now we've expanded that nationwide, and at the conference, actually, our analyst is going to present our um, year-long data associated with patient satisfaction. Um, and patient satisfaction for us is, for home infusion is very, very high. One of the, probably one of the, the highest rated um, areas we see is under patient education. So there's a, a lot that we did with patient education and patient outcomes and patient satisfaction. But we've also started a pilot program recently that's really more focused on outcomes. And one of the outcomes we're going to be looking at is vascular access. So again, being able to have that national standardized data across multitude of different providers really will help us show the value of uh, home infusion in a way that we've, we haven't been able to do in the past. I'm excited to see that. So your conference yeah, is coming up in April, I, yeah, um, in, yeah, in Colorado as well, so similar to us. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about the the conference and what attendees will see or hear. Yeah, I, I mean, as you know, Judy, once you're in this last eight weeks, right? It's um, it's really busy and exciting at the same time. Um, but we've really, I think, on some of the, you know, I think you keep hearing over the last three or four years all the different things that NHI is doing. And one of the big things we've tried to do over the last four years is transform our conference. Uh, we started with uh, three years ago doing a sterile compounding clinic, which is uh, basically a separate um, education track uh, through the entire conference. It's a different registration, um, but they we have in our exhibit hall, we actually will have a mock um, clean room, we have hoods, we have people compounding, um, and we do instruction rate in the uh, exhibit hall. And that's been fantastic. So that's been extremely successful over the last three years. We're already beating records for attendance based on the last couple of years. The other thing we started a couple of years ago was um, we did an RN Essentials pre-conference. 
Uh, we're so excited this year to be able to expand that for the entire conference. So when we talked earlier about um, really the surge of placing lines in the home, our pre-conference is going to be dedicated solely to line placement, vascular access device placement. We're going to be going over peripherals, extended dwell peripherals, uh, ultrasound, and MST placement for uh, midlines. So we're excited to have that. BD has decided to help us with uh, sponsorship this year, which is a big deal. Um, and then that will just continue out throughout the conference, really having education specific to home infusion nursing. As a home infusion nurse, it's a dream of mine to bring this to the conference. Um, we're going to be covering everything from keeping our clinicians safe in the home um, to handling hazardous drugs, um, all the way to patient education. So for me, this is a super proud moment for Home Infusion to really be recognizing those nurses and the value that they provide. For one, I can't wait to be there and, and see some of your courses and some of the sessions. So I'm excited. Yeah, I think, I mean, the partnership with Ava, when you're when we're talking about line placement, uh, vascular access device care, we love to be partnering with you. I'm so glad to have you at the pre-conference this year. Uh, to really see what we're doing in the home um, and really be able to help us as you're developing guidelines um, or position papers to, you know, really see what those clinicians are doing in the home. So it's, I'm really excited to have you come, Judy. I'm excited. And I'm, let's talk about the um, resources that we're talking about collaborating with on the, uh, the post-acute care resource. So, I think that can be such a value for so many people because so many, as you said, there's so many patients leaving the hospital needing, still needing infusions and some people just live on lines as well. So um, exactly. And yeah, I, know and I think, that, you know, I mean, we talked about this, Judy, I mean, one of the things that's so that I think really has happened over the last few years as well is not, you know, and as most people know, most things kind of flow from the acute care, and then start moving into post-acute. But there's difference and, and variations, and we want to make sure that our clinicians in, at home are practicing to the highest standards of care. I think what I love about collaborating with Ava is that I feel that the home infusion clinicians are will have a, have a stake in the guidelines um, and the revisions that you're working on. And that makes it so much easier for our clinicians to per, to really practice at that standard. So I, I can't thank you enough for including NHA in that um, and our home infusion group. Right back at you for playing with us. So um, I want to be mindful of your time, but I do have one more question for you. I've heard sure. that you guys have a legislation um, or agenda focused on Medicare yeah. beneficiaries. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, you know, I think probably one of the biggest things that people don't really know is that um, if, you know, you're like you and I, Judy and Eric, and we have commercial insurance, home infusion is a covered benefit for us. And actually, it's a preferred benefit in many cases because, the, you know, we want to move people out of the acute care setting. We don't want them in skilled nursing facilities. Um, but if you're a Medicare beneficiary, you do not have a complete benefit. Um, NHIA has been fighting this fight on the Hill for legislation for a long, long time. We are committed to getting our Medicare beneficiaries a proper home infusion benefit. 
I don't know about you, but, you know, my dad's in his 70s now. He's out chopping wood, playing tennis. If he needed long-term IV infusion or intermittent infusion, he should not be going to a skilled nursing facility. There is no need for him to go there. And that's really what we're trying to do is make sure that Medicare beneficiaries have an option, Cytocare option, like I do and like you do, to be able to get their care. Sometimes a skilled nursing facility is absolutely where needs to happen, but many times it doesn't. And so we're really hyper-focused on this this year. Um, we have a couple of bills that we're looking to be able to drop. We're working with CMS. We're really trying to get this over the finally over uh, and and provide this for our Medicare beneficiaries. If you can't tell, we're very passionate about it. Um, when I have an age, <laughs> I mean, we all have, you know, parents now who are getting to that age and boy, I want to make sure that they have the opportunity um, that we have in order to get their care. Well, I hear your determination. I'm sure it's going to happen and good on you. This is awesome because Nobody wants to be in a skilled nursing facility in a hospital. Everybody wants to be home. So yeah. I um, I applaud you for that. Well, Jen, I, I, I think can't think people don't. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I think a lot of people don't realize that as a Medicare beneficiary that you don't have a complete benefit until it's too late. Um, you know, we I hope that people don't need home infusion. Um, and so a lot of times that's not high on people's list, but when it becomes to that point that you need it, that's when it's hard to say, okay, I didn't realize I don't have a benefit for that. And so that's really what we're focusing on. So I appreciate the time. Oh, absolutely. And I had no idea either. So you educated me on that as well. And I thank you for that. I'm sure well, a lot I've... of our listeners will be educated as well. And any of you are NHIA members, remember you receive a 15% discount on an AVA membership. So, you know, NHIAs are a partner of AVA. So, if those of you who are considering diving into the pool that is Ava, come on over and you get it at a discount as well. Absolutely. And our education actually works towards your VABC renewal. So we love yeah, to have- I'm so excited about. So great! I forgot to mention that at the conference that we're going to be adding in um, research credits for the VABC. So thanks for reminding me about that. Absolutely. Well, thank you much. And I can't wait to see you in a few weeks in Denver. Enjoy. I know the last few weeks prior to getting ready for conference is very stressful. You'll get through it. And then I'll get to see you in beautiful Denver, Colorado. Yeah, we're so excited. This is an exciting time. It's like our Super Bowl, right? So uh, it is. I'll see you at the Super Bowl, I guess. <laughs> see you at the Super Bowl. Thanks so much. <laughs> Good place to meet. Thanks, Jen. <laughs> thank you. Take care. Happy March, everyone! Here's a look at the upcoming AVA Network events this month. Ozark Van and OK Van both have meetings on Thursday, March 5th. That's tomorrow. Ozark Van welcomes Angela Boatman for a discussion on catheter-related thrombosis in Springfield, Missouri, starting at 6.30 p.m. Thank you to Angiodynamics for sponsoring. And OK Van reviews the history and science of silver in managing infections in the vascular access specialty with Amanda Budek. Dinner and 1.2 CE credits are available. Thank you to Silverlawn for sponsoring this event. A week later, on Thursday, March 12th, Minivan's March Educational Dinner event is at the Hilton Minneapolis Bloomington. Join friend of the podcast, Dr. Jack Ledun, for a presentation on the downside of vascular access. Thank you to Eloquest Healthcare for sponsoring this one CE event. 
And be sure to check out all upcoming local AVA Network events at the AVA website. Simply visit avainfo.org slash calendar. You can see the entire AVA Network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or Google Play Music for our Android users. You can also find direct links to all episodes on each of these streaming services by visiting avainfo.org slash podcast. The topics discussed on the I Save That podcast are purely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decision that affects your health or the health of, of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information we have presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the fair use doctrine, as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this broadcast or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in any part or in any form without prior written consent from the Association for Vascular Access.